Maine is known for its rocky coastline, beautiful forests, and brutal winters. It's the home of Stephen King, Alan's Coffee Brandy, and the Best Lobster. To the people who come from away, it's a vacation. But to those of us who live here, it's the way life should be. Welcome to Vacationland. My name is AJ, and I will be your guide through the history and mysteries of Maine. Please use caution listening to this episode as it does contain some graphic descriptions of cannibalism. The Nottingham Galley was a British merchant vessel captained by John Dean. It carried 10 guns and a crew of 14. It was the smallest vessel anyone would want for a transatlantic crossing. The ship would eventually leave port in Killybegs, Ireland, loaded with butter, cheese, and other stores, and head for Boston on September 25, 1710. Ten weeks later, on December 11th, the Nottingham Galley was hit with a terrible storm, which drove them through hail, rain, and snow. The temperature hovered around freezing, the sea heaved with mountainous waves, and visibility was limited to little more than the boat's own decks and rigging. Navigating through the fog and low-lying clouds was nearly impossible, but Captain Dean stood on deck and tried to maneuver through the murk. To his horror, he could hear a sound coming from the blackness ahead. Above the howling of the storm came the thunder of crashing surf. The percussive boom of breakers and frothing sea could only mean one thing a massive rock dead ahead. The captain yelled at his crew to turn hard to starboard. Either in a panic or unable to hear well through the gale, the sailors spun the wheel in the opposite direction. It was too late to correct their course anyway. The boat came to a sudden, devastating halt. They had crashed against the ledge. Waves hammered the side of the vessel, and it began to break apart. It was so dark and the weather so terrible that they could not see the rock and were faced with the terrifying prospect of drowning in the frigid sea. In a desperate attempt to abandon the sinking ship and reach whatever safety they could, the crew cut the ship's masts. They came crashing down one at a time with the foremost mast landing on the unseen rock. One by one, the crew climbed out onto the mast. Captain Dean was the last to go out into the dark. He clung to the mast, his feet dangling, but the beam ended before he could reach whatever safety lay ahead. He was left with no choice but to let go and gamble with the sea. In desperation, the captain reached out and grabbed at the granite stone. He was able to clutch it briefly, but was unable to hang on. He was pulled out to sea by the waves, only to be dashed upon the rocks again and again. The December ocean was barely above freezing. Water temperatures in the Gulf of Maine are in the low 40s during the winter, and so cold that incapacitation can occur in as little as five minutes. Dean, battered and bruised, grabbed the rock with such desperation in a final attempt to save himself that he ripped flesh and nails right off his fingers and clawed his way to shore. Despite the weather and the violence of the wreck, the sea claimed no lives that night. As the crewmen stood on the rock, wind swept through their wet garments to the skin and set the men shaking. They were likely clad in linen shirts and trousers, perhaps some cotton, which offered no protection. 
they would have abandoned their woolen coats, fearing the weight and constraint in the water. Huddled together, the men managed to make it through the night, and in the morning, they explored their refuge. It didn't take long. It was an expanse of jagged rock, which at normal high tide measures fewer than 150 feet by 300 feet, with the highest point reaching a mere 14 feet above the crashing waves. The crew was aware the severe storm tides had the potential to submerge the entire island. Even worse, the rock was barren. There was no ground for trees, shrubs, or grass. The island would offer no shelter or material to make a fire. The men scoured the shore for anything from the Nottingham galley. Some wood planks and canvas had washed up, and pieces of the masts, sails, and cordage floated out in the water, tangled and held in place by the anchor, but that was all that remained of the merchant ship. Dampness pervaded everything. They were unable to make a fire, but would continue trying for more than a week before giving up. They were able to rig a rough tent-like shelter from a scrap of sail, and the men slept on top of each other to conserve body heat. When the weather cleared, the crew saw how close to safety they had come. York Harbor was visible just a few miles away. Ships sailed in and out, but the crewmen had no way to make themselves seen at that distance. The potentially useful material still tangled in the rocks and anchor needed to be salvaged. Captain Dean planned to use the wreckage for the construction of a shelter and a means of escape. If they could see the mainland, the men thought they could reach it. It meant waiting in the icy surf, and the task was too much for some members of the crew. Among those not working was the ship's cook, who complained of hunger and cold. He didn't look well, and he was ordered not to participate in the salvage operation. By noon of the third day, the cook was dead. Likely of hypothermia-induced heart failure, his body was taken to the shore at low tide and was carried away by the water. As waves pounded the remains of the ship, a few more items washed ashore, including a second piece of sail, which they used to better secure their shelter from the wind, and they topped it with a white distress flag. At some point, after a few days, one of the men became aware that he could no longer feel his feet. He tugged and pulled at his shoes, but it quickly became clear that his feet had become so swollen that he would not be able to remove them. Several others began checking their own feet. No one had wanted to take anything off in the cold, and walking on the jagged rock in bare feet was not a pleasant proposition. But one of the sailors realized he had better remove his shoes before he lost all circulation. The men were most likely suffering from some combination of immersion foot and frostbite. The sailor took out a knife and began to carefully and painfully cut away at his shoe. Slicing through the leather without also piercing the foot took time. When he was finished, he found that what was inside his boot was even worse than he had feared. His stockings had fused to the skin. He would start to peel those off, too, only to find that skin was coming off with the sock. When he reached the end of his foot, gasping in pain, his toenails tore off as well. The others discovered the same thing, and screams filled the tent, horrified by the sight and smell. On a couple of occasions, the sea offered them cheeses from their cargo, and they were able to eat from a few beef bones by pounding them on rocks. They found the seaweed was edible, and low tide uncovered mussels in the pits and hollow crags of the rock. Snow and rain collected in the furrows of the rocky ledges and provided them with drinkable water. A caulking mallet, hammer, and cutlass blade, and bits of wood with nails had also washed up. With their bellies tended to and their shelter erected, they soon turned their attention to building an escape raft. Time, however, was not on their side. The ship's crew grew weaker by the day. Many of the men were in such bad shape 
that they were of little help. In addition to cold and hunger, the men suffered from boils, ulcers, and peeling skin around the legs and ankles of those who still had their boots on. Soon, the majority of the ship's crew were so debilitated by their wounds that they combined themselves to the tent 24 hours a day. Even those who ventured out to work did so only occasionally and would otherwise remain in the crude shelter. Captain Dean nursed them as best he could. Moving through the tent at night, he changed their dressings, exposing their sores. They would rinse the wounds in seawater or urine and bind them again. For the men who stayed in the tent trying to sleep, their bodies had begun to wear away wherever they touched the rock. They had developed pressure sores, and malnourishment only made the problem worse. In the first stage of a pressure sore, the skin turns purple with bruising. If the men had been rescued at that point, it still would have taken roughly two months for them to heal. In the second stage, the skin breaks open, forming an ulcer. In the third stage, the sore worsens. It forms a small crater that extends underneath the skin and into the tissue. With nerve damage, the pain increases. There's risk of infection and tissue death. In the final phase, muscles and tendons are affected. Despite these challenges, work continued on the boat. And just as their escape raft was nearing completion, the carpenter's axe washed ashore, making the remainder of the job that much easier. They had made a flat-bottomed craft, three planks wide, with two planks on each side, and shortened boards across the bow and stern. Anything they could find, strips of sailcloth, leather, lead, and oakum, were used to seal the seams. The sailcloth was secured around the perimeter of the boat to keep water out. According to Dean, the boat also included a mast, a small sail, and paddles. It was impressive for the conditions. December 21st, the ocean was calmer than any time since they had landed. The boat could only carry seven passengers. Some would have to remain on the rock and await rescue. Captain Dean, his brother, the first mate, and four others were selected to go, including the carpenter, though he was ill. Simply hauling the boat to shore was a difficult task. The granite made walking arduous, even without trying to move a heavy boat and it was all several of the men could do to leave the tent and stand upright. The tide was running very high, so the crew who were selected to go had to wade deep into the icy water to launch the craft. They pushed and pulled the craft out into water up to their waists. The captain and his crewmen rocked in the small boat as the Atlantic heaved beneath them. They tried to get past the line of breakers that pushed them back toward the island, but their craft was unable to do so. The waves hurled the boat along the shore and capsized, dumping the men back into the water. They narrowly escaped drowning a second time, and their small boat was dashed upon the rocks. Morale got worse when they realized that most, if not all, of the materials that went into the shipbuilding were lost, including the axe and a hammer which the carpenter had placed in the hull. The utter failure of the boat brought the crewmen to a new low. Captain Dean would later recount, We were now reduced to the most deplorable and melancholy circumstances imaginable. Almost every man but myself, weak to an extremity, and near starved with hunger and cold, their hands and feet frozen and mortified, with large and deep ulcers in their legs, the very smell offensive to those of us who could creep into the air, and nothing to dress them with but a piece of linen that was cast on shore. No fire, and the weather extreme cold, our small stock of cheese spent, and nothing to support our feeble bodies but rockweed and a few mussels, scarce and difficult to get, at most not above two or three for each man a day. So that we had our miserable bodies perishing, and our poor disconsolate spirits overpowered, with the deplorable prospect of starving, without any prospect of relief, the greater part of our company were ready to die with horror and despair, 
without the least hopes of escaping. The men kept an anxious watch on the lunar phases and the rising water, worrying about a spring tide which appears after a full or new moon. They noticed the growing beds of rockweed as the low tide moved farther and farther off the ledges. They waited for the high tide to climb the rocks and flood their little shelter, ultimately putting them out of their misery. But the full moon passed. They wouldn't drown in their beds, at least not this month. The waning moon caused other problems, however. The radically low tides were gone with it, leaving the seaweed and its mussels underwater. It was becoming virtually impossible to find anything to eat. The pangs of hunger were increasing. Captain Dean would later admit he considered eating one of his own fingers. He had even tasted his own excrement to see if it could possibly be palatable. Anything to fill his belly. The captain was one of the few crew members who now left the tent. After the boat overturned, most of the men seemed content to lie there and accept their fate. Christmas Day came, though having lost track of time, they argued which day it was, but it brought with it a small gift. A seagull landed nearby, and it sat there long enough and close enough that the first mate was able to hit it with a saucepan. They had to eat the bird raw, and it was small, but it was something. The captain and a sailor known as the Swede retained some hope. From the beginning, the Swede had preferred a simpler, smaller raft to a full-fledged boat as a way off the island, and despite the sinking of their last attempt, he still thought that going for help was their only option. He'd already decided that no one was coming to save them. He would lead the effort to build the raft from the few materials they had left. Over the course of the next week, he labored under staggeringly difficult conditions. Frostbite had claimed both of his legs, which meant that to work, he had to drag his lower half behind him. As the raft neared completion, the Swede tried to persuade the captain to come along with him, but Dean wanted none of it. He thought a trip on the primitive vessel was a death sentence. The Swede had decided the time was right. The wind was pushing toward the mainland. He was placed on board, since he couldn't wade into the water on his legs, and another sailor climbed on board on his own. Captain Dean pushed them off. They paddled out a little, but waves soon overset them. The makeshift mast and sail on the little raft were lost. A strong swimmer, the Swede returned to shore with little difficulty, but the other man had to be dragged back to the island. The Swede was not deterred, and another volunteer came forward. The two men were set on the raft and soon paddled away. The crew could do little but wait. The Nottingham galley's carpenter had been steadily worsening. Each night toward the end of December, the men would lie crowded together in the tent, listening to his raspy breathing. One evening, around midnight, he died. The night passed with the corpse practically lying on top of several crew members, but they couldn't be bothered to move it. Shortly after removing the body the next day, the question was posed. The idea of eating the carpenter prompted a lengthy debate. Eventually, the majority ruled. It was one thing to decide to commit the act of cannibalism. It was another altogether to play the role of butcher. Everyone in the tent understood that Dean was the most logical choice for the task. He had the most physical strength remaining and the best hands. They had resolved to cut the most distinctly human parts from the rest of the corpse, which included the skin, hands, feet, and head. Those would be left to the ocean. It would take hours to dismember the man. The captain cut parts of the flesh into thin slices, washed it with seawater, and brought it to the tent. They ate rockweed with it to serve in place of bread. To make the carpenter's flesh more palatable, the men would call it beef. After they had all eaten their part of the carpenter, Dean noticed that the behavior of his crew had changed. I found, in a few days, their very natural dispositions changed, and that affectionate, peaceable temper they had all along 
there too discovered totally lost, their eyes staring and looking wild, their countenances fierce and barbarous, and instead of obeying my commands, as they had universally and readily done before, I found all I could say, even prayers and entreaties vain and fruitless, nothing now being to be heard but brutish quarrels with horrid oaths and impreciations, instead of that quiet submissive spirit of prayer and supplication we had before enjoyed. The flesh satisfied the hunger of the crew, but they craved more. Dean did his best to ration the meat, but he worried what would happen once it was gone. The captain described the state of the men as New Year's Day approached, half-frozen, more than half-famished, distempered, ulcerous, despairing, unable to help themselves. In a word, laboring under a complication of the greatest evils, colds, diseases, famine, prospect of death, and dread of damnation. On the mainland, the body of an emaciated man, his skin waxy white, marred with ulcers and blackened in places from frostbite, had been discovered lying along the expanse of a desolate beach. Captain Lewis Bain, the coroner for the town of York, was summoned and led to the scene. It was January 1st. Bain looked the dead man over. A couple hundred yards away lay the primitive craft. Clearly, the man had been on a short journey. This was not the sort of craft anyone would choose to navigate the Gulf of Maine in winter. On the morning of January 2nd, men crawled from the shelter and saw a small open boat less than three miles away and heading straight for the island. Wary of coming closer to the rocky ledges, the vessel anchored about a hundred yards away and waited for smoother waters. With the tide rising at noon, the boat moved in closer so that Dean could shout back and forth with the men in the boat. One of the men came ashore in a small canoe. Dean could see from the man's face that his physical appearance had rendered the other man speechless. The shock was magnified upon viewing the rest of the survivors. Wraith-like, and with the little clothing they had in tatters, their thin frames covered in sores and frostbite, the castaways told the fishermen that they'd survived more than three weeks since their ship went aground. They told the rescuers that two of their men had died of exposure and two had left on a raft to get help, never to be seen again. The fishermen built a fire and tried to evacuate Dean, but was unsuccessful. A storm had been brewing, and the men, who had brought so much hope with their arrival, were forced to sail off. After 22 days, the survivors finally had a fire and struggled to get warm as they waited for rescue. The crew waited out the storm, to the sound of meat sizzling on the fire. Since rescue was imminent, some argued for more shares of the carpenter's flesh. The captain said he gave them a second helping, but it still wasn't enough. It became difficult to justify rationing the meat since there was so little left and rescue was coming. On January 4th, a larger ship arrived and finally carried them to safety. Every man in the crew had lost at least one finger or toe. Only the ship's boy would lose more. Half of his foot had to be cut away. This accounting of what happened to the crew of the Nottingham Galley by Captain Dean has largely been taken as the truth for most of history. However, three crew members did contest Dean's tale. They claimed that Dean was a brutal captain who beat his crew and hoarded food and water during their journey. They also reported that cannibalism was Dean's idea, and he forced a reluctant crew member to cut portions of the poor carpenter's body and that no one ate more than the captain. Furthermore, there were those who felt that Dean was responsible for the shipwreck, that he had been reckless with the ship in hopes to collect on the insurance money. The truth has been lost to time, but what's left is one hell of a tale.
There are over 4,600 islands off the coast of Maine. The one which the crew of the Nottingham Galley landed on is known as Boone Island, and the merchant ship wasn't the first to crash there. 28 years prior, the British trading ship Increase wrecked on the island, and four men survived there for a month. But it was summer, there was more wildlife and fish to catch, and they didn't have to contend with freezing temperatures. The Nottingham Galley wasn't the last to run aground on the tiny island either. It's rumored that sailors would leave barrels of food and other supplies on the island in the event of another shipwreck. Locals were prompted to finally build a lighthouse, though. The first wooden tower was finished in 1799, but it was later destroyed in a storm in 1804. A stone day beacon would be erected in the summer of 1805. There was no light, and it was marked only with a signboard. Three of the men responsible for the beacon died for their efforts when their boat capsized, leaving the island. By the winter of 1811, another lighthouse had been finished, this time with a working light, but it had difficulty keeping a caretaker when they saw the vulnerability of the structure on the low island. Damage from storms would force the lighthouse to be rebuilt in 1831. The lightkeeper's dwelling was chronically inhospitable and suffered from many leaks and general cold, leading to the house being rebuilt almost as many times as the light. The final straw was a blizzard in 1978. The house was flooded with up to five feet of water, and the keepers were forced to take refuge in the tower. They were later airlifted out by a helicopter. The Coast Guard would finally install an automated light in 1993. Today, Boone Island Lighthouse remains the tallest in New England. You can't visit the island, but it can be viewed from a boat or helicopter. for listening to the first episode of Vacation Land. I hope you enjoyed your visit. If you would like to learn more about the Nottingham Galley and Boone Island, you can read Boone Island by Andrew Veets and visit newenglandlighthouses.net. All sources will be available on pinetreepodcasts.com. Click on Vacation Land at the top of the page. Music is by Lurker. You can see more of his work at lurker.bandcamp.com.